from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. Okay, so... Do we have any questions, comments? Well, my first comment I'd like to um, make is I was going to mention uh, Dr. Dean Nadal because I listened to him for 30 years out of San Francisco. I lived there. And uh, that's what promoted me as a grandmother uh, to almost demand that my grandson was not circumcised because my daughter and her husband were very, they didn't, they weren't educated about it at all and they had no opinion about it and so i spent nine months of course dr dean adele was still on at the time he just retired and um so every time dr dean adele talked about it i would go back to them and say this is what dr dean adele said this is what he said this is what he said and i noticed that he was um at at the end yep he's in the credits uh partly because uh, the hospital footage of circumcision that you saw in the film, there's some clips of that. Uh, I was given permission to use by uh, Tim Sally, uh, who made a feature-length documentary called Whose Body, Whose Rights in the mid-90s. And um, it, it was thanks to Dr. Dina Dell that he got that footage. When I, when I set out to make this film, I approached eight different hospitals in the Chicagoland area and none of them allowed me to come in to film anything. Uh, and I even pressed on some family connections, and I mean, there was just wow. no way. So I'm I not never... really surprised. I was an ER nurse, and in the 80s, early 80s, I held down many, many babies, and watching this made it come back. Yeah. You know, hold. I was the one holding down. On Saturdays, we would do circumcisions. And, and abortions, which is really kind of interesting, <laughs> the two on the same day. Um, but my job was to hold down the babies. And it wasn't Jewish, because the, the Jews had their own, obviously didn't have anything to do with our hospital. I'll say one more thing that was, is personal, is um, our baby wasn't circumcised, but he did get a urinary tract infection that turned into a kidney infection when he was three months old. But we still didn't circumcise. And the doctor's comment, the pediatrician's comment was, well, that's fine, so let's just see. You know, you know that's fine if, you know, if he does, he continues to do well and doesn't have repeated urinary tract infections, we're fine. Yeah. It's funny, you know, the, the urinary tract infection sort of rationale for, for doing circumcisions, it's very spurious. Those studies uh, were done in the 80s by a guy named Thomas Wiswell, who was a military doctor. And there were some really glaring uh, methodological flaws with his studies, um, including a, just something is bizarre. The particular hospitals that he happened to be working in, a majority of the boys were intact. And so, so just like an obvious, you know, the, so, oh, look at all these intact boys with urinary tract infections, well, if a majority of the boys are intact, yeah, I mean, there were there were other problems too. They didn't control for things like uh, forced retractions, which is a big, big issue now. Um, you know, uh, intact boys are born with the foreskin fused to the head of the penis by I a membrane. Know that. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, and uh, a lot of people don't know this. This is a just basic, you know, care for the intact penis 101. You don't forcibly retract. People don't know that. If we can, yeah, just make sure. You know, people don't know that. I don't know that. I, you know, this uh, comment on the idea of cleanliness. I mean, women used to do have douches every day, mm. and they found out that that was even detrimental. Women don't do that anymore. We're not dirty. Right. It, and I don't know. Comment we had a screening. Yeah, we had a screening up in Seattle, and um, there's a, a very brilliant lawyer up there by the name of John Geisiker, and uh, he he does a lot of work around this forced retraction issue because it's a huge deal. Um, the circumcision rates in this country are going down precipitously, and um, so there are a lot of boys being left intact these days, and. There's this really bad uh, meme piece of information that floats around the medical community that you need to um, forcibly retract the foreskin in order to clean it. And what John Geisiker said was that it's the equivalent of sort of telling parents that they need to break their infant girl's hymen so that they can douche her vagina. Because that's basically the sort of anatomical equivalent here. Okay. You have uh, a protective mechanism a physiological mechanism that is the the fusion of the foreskin to the glands at birth it's protective it's there so that you don't have to worry about that mucous membrane and that point of entry getting infected that's the natural state of affairs and you don't have to touch it but we have this notion and we also have uh, some very uh, you know unusual psychosexual impulses to see what a normal penis looks like so you get these cases of forced retraction which is actually trauma the, yeah, in the, the hospital infant. when he had a urinary tract infection, they catheterized him. And if I would have known that, I'm a nurse. I did that kind of thing for yeah. 38 years, yeah. holding down little boys while they we catheterized them. If I would known that, the nurses, myself and the nurses I worked with, we wouldn't catheterize the boys when we needed a urinary sample. And we... Um, we wouldn't have been so rough because yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, no. And it, 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 we've forgotten how to take care of intact penises in this country because we went so circumcision happy. And, um, you know, the, these two structures develop over the course of, a, of an individual's life, and they separate naturally, sometimes as late as well into puberty. That's what I've heard. Yeah. And, and so any attempt to forcibly retract and clean, even the use of soap is not advisable because there's a natural bacterial floor that exists in that part of the body. And if you use soap, you're going to disrupt that. And that increases the chances of infection. This comes back to what we were talking about with the urinary tract infection studies in which it was accepted wisdom then that you forcibly retract the foreskin and clean. And so... It would seem clear to me in any event, and other people have made this comment, that uh, whatever increase in urinary tract infection that you may have seen could very well have been due to this horrible practice because you're tearing mucosa and you're um, sort of creating a site for infection by doing Well, that. that's good information that I learned today, and I can, I can take that home and, and tell them because we don't do anything with it right now. Right. And that's right. But I don't know where you get that information. I don't know if a pediatrician would tell them. Well, a lot what? of pediatricians don't know this. And uh, John Geisiker, again, who uh, sends out about 100 letters a year of complaint to medical facilities about th this practice, 
He estimates that about 100,000 forced retractions occur every year in the United States, which, you know, again, it's extremely painful for the boy. They usually scream when it's being done. Um, these membranes are being torn. Uh, it can lead to infection, and it, indeed it can lead to uh, sexual consequences later in life if it's really traumatic. So, yeah, this is something that people, especially as circumcision rates decline in this country, is a really important issue for people to get out there so that they know, you know, the, the best care for the intact penis is just leave it alone. When the boy's ready to retract, he'll retract it, and at that point, you can talk to him about cleaning. But until that point, just absolutely leave it alone. Don't even use soap. Yeah. Well, I do know um, my daughter has the two-and-a-half-year-old, and, a half year old and we're, we know a lot of other families with the two-and-a-half-year-olds because we go to a group that are all the same age. Um, it's not a taboo subject anymore like it was. And, you know, my son-in-law announced to his mother, well, we're not circumcising the baby. And her comment was, well, I hope you know how to clean it. And I'm, I'm going to stop talking because other people have other, no, I have two pages spread of this stuff. information. Well, of course I Please am. Do. It's not to it's not taboo in our I mean, in our group. Good. Good for you guys. Next uh, question or comment. Yeah, I've talked enough. Um, I was just wondering because I've heard this so many times just in conversation and also in your film where Jewish people are saying, that there's so much stigma and there's all these consequences if a Jewish boy is left intact. But mm -hmm. the only specific thing I've ever heard is eating from the Paschal lamb, which I don't really, I'm not very familiar with that. But I, I just want to know, like, reality. What is the reality of being okay. an intact Jewish boy? Okay. So eating from the Paschal lamb is the only consequence that I'm aware of to being an intact Jewish boy. You're not allowed to eat from the Paschal lamb. The Paschal lamb is a sacrifice that was brought 2,000 years ago when the temple was around. Uh, since the temple's destroyed, Jews do not bring the Paschal lamb, with a few notable fringe exceptions, <laughs> but uh, Samaritans and whatever. But the Jews in general do not bring the Paschal lamb. They don't bring any sac animal sacrifices anymore. We don't know when the temple's going to be rebuilt. So the practical religious consequences, the actual practical religious consequences of being a Jewish intact male today are zero. So religious-wise, zero. But Zero. as far as shunning, I think your father used the word shunning. Right. So, so that's, uh, I mean, that's a harder thing to quantify. Um, my sense is that it's way overblown. I can't remember many situations in which I was spending time staring at <laughs> my fellow's penises. Um, you know, yeah, I guess there were some locker room situations and whatever, but that was never such a big deal. Um I will say that, and, and it's important to note this, that there's some rabbis who, not with any religious basis, but just for political reasons, will say things like, I'm not going to give a bar mitzvah to a boy who's intact. But they're just, you know... They're just, How do they know if no one tells them? Right, no, I mean, they're just nasty. I mean, these are nasty people um, who, you know, in all honesty, are really blaming the wrong person. You know, I mean, if a kid wants to be bar mitzvah and he, he, his parents didn't circumcise him for whatever reason, you know, not... Bar, giving him a bar mitzvah because of a decision that his parents made is kind of like blaming the kid for something the parents did, which is not, I mean, that's just unethical. Um, and using this as a political platform instead of embracing someone who's interested in participating in the tradition is just wrong. Um, and you're going to find people who do all sorts of wrong things and religious authorities who do all sorts of horrible things with their religious authority. Um, but I interviewed an Orthodox rabbi in Chicago earlier in the podcast series when I was there, 
uh, Rabbi Asher Lopatin, who's the, uh, he's a very famous, prominent Orthodox rabbi. And I asked him, I posed the question, you know, if uh, an intact Jewish boy wanted to be bar mitzvah, wanted to be part of services, whatever, would you have a problem with that? And he said, no, we welcome with, we'd welcome him with open arms. Anyone who's, you know, who wants to be, wants to engage with the tradition, we should be welcoming with open arms. And, uh, you know, other rabbis have said things like, I, I don't do penis checks. <laughs> um, but, you know, with, with a few notable exceptions, with some, you know, idiots who are trying to make some political hay out of this, um, I think that the actual consequences, not the imagined consequences, but the actual consequences are very, very, you know, non-existent, basically. Um, and it's interesting to me because there's a parallel in American culture where people talk about the locker room. That's, I think, one of the top reasons. If you ask American parents why they circumcise, like the number one reason is so that he looks like dad. And like two or three is so that he won't be shamed in, in a locker room situation. And I can tell you, having now traveled around the country talking to many, many families who have decided to leave their boys intact. And I'm always asking, I'm constantly asking them, you know, was this, you know, what about the locker room? What about the shame? How do you deal with, like, I assume that it's an issue that they have to deal with. And, you know, one of the most interesting things to me has been, it's not. It's just a non-issue. Every single family to a person said that it's not something they had to deal with. Of course, I'm sure there are fringe cases, and I've heard, you know, that there are some people who grew up and, you know, either a woman shamed them for being intact or whatever. But my uh, understanding now, having spoken to a lot of people about this, is that while it may exist, it's really not as big a deal as people think it is. Um, and moreover, if we're going back to the Jewish side of this, um, <laughs> raising an Orthodox Jewish child in and of itself... Um, you know, uh, you're you're putting them at much more risk for shame just being an Orthodox Jew in a modern secular society than something that most people can, will never see. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, from Sabbath observance to to eating kosher to you know not doing not doing things on all the Jewish holidays and going to different schools and looking different and wearing a skull cap and I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. So like the, these. What what I've come to realize is that on both sides, on the Jewish side and on the American side, the imagined consequences of leaving a boy intact are just so much a figment of people's imagination. Okay. Okay, so on the opposite side of that, um, what do you think is the consequence? If we, if we are successful as intactivists to putting this practice to an end, what is overall the result of that? Like, why is this a worthwhile discussion to be having well i mean you heard marilyn in the film say that i think that when we're living in a world when men know that they've been protected by women you know we'll be living in a different world that is, that is one of the most moving things yeah. i've ever heard um and i, I think that's yeah. true like i really think that um that there that it says something and again it's not it's not like a direct sort of one-to-one -one. but it, it's and i like the way she put it too because it, it it supports what i'm about to say it says something very specific about our culture that we tolerate this it says something about um the violence inherent in our culture that 
we just sort of brush it off like it's no big deal, that it's just accepted. It says something specific about the way we view violence against the male body versus violence against the female body, for example. Um, my point about gender is very, very simple. And it comes from my feminism, actually. I'm a feminist, and I think circumcision should be taken much more seriously by feminists. And it's just a very simple insight into the way our culture views violence against the male body and violence against the female body. And the way I like to, I, I like to give an example when I talk about this to people, which is if I showed you a film clip of a man slapping a woman, and then I cut to a film clip of a woman slapping a man. The first clip might evoke revulsion. The second clip might, evo might evoke a laugh. Um, and that's just a fact about the way we view violence against the male body and violence against the female body. And if you care about treating people as equals, I mean, that's what this just comes down to, is that you know whatever our gender conceptions are, uh, at a rights level, individuals should have the same kinds of protections for their bodies, um, then you understand that circumcision is, is directly relevant to that. I'm 61, but I hope at least within my lifetime that we look at male circumcision like we do female circumcision. There may be some structural differences and there may be some differences. Uh, I understand that female circumcision, there's a wide variance of what it is and what people think it is. Um, but I hope within my lifetime that we'll look at male circumcision in the same way, of at least in taking the sexual uh, freedom away in the same way. Yeah, and I, I agree. I, I mean, I think something when we're talking about male and female genital cutting practices, one of the things that people don't understand is that there, it's true, female genital cutting practices, uh, it's an umbrella, female circumcision is an umbrella term that refers to a number of cutting practices of, with varying degrees of severity. But a lot of people don't realize that the same is true of male genital cutting practices. Oh, and okay. uh, the Philippines, for example, um, they do a much less radical form of male genital cutting. They do a dorsal slit along the uh, dorsal side of the mm -hmm. foreskin, and that's their cutting practice. That's all? That's it. Um, it has effects, you know, some, sometimes the foreskin atrophies, and so it's still damaging, but it's clearly not as damaging as Muslim circumcision, which is not as damaging as Jewish and American circumcision, which is not as damaging as aboriginal sub-incision in which the penis is split right down the urethra and, you know, folded in half. So there's a wide variety of male genital Holy cutting practices mackerel. worldwide also. Um, and yeah, I, I share your hope that in our lifetime we'll see a shift in the way we look at these practices um, and that there'll be a little more equality. I think I'm starting to see it. I, I think there's some concrete indicators that, that our culture is shifting on male genital cutting, but uh, we're not there yet. I have a comment that doesn't have anything to do with circumcision, but it does have a, something to do with abuse of an, an infant. That giving the wine to that baby is abusive. That baby should not be given alcohol to deaden the senses. I mean, well, I don't know that it does that. I think yeah. this comes back to we were talking about what this a little bit before this notion that babies don't feel pain or that you can give them a little bit of sugar 
you know, or a little alcohol to dull oh. the pain. I, I don't buy. So does that have, is that always part of the Jewish tradition or is just that family? No, does no, that's a, that's a, that's pretty universally practiced. They oh, give it, I they give them a little wine. It's believed again, this bizarre belief that you give a baby a little bit of wine or you give it a little bit of sugar water and it's not going to notice that you're cutting off the most sensitive part of its penis. <laughs> it's just kind of, you know, you have to sort of be in magical thinking space to, to think that that works. But it, it's the same in the medical profession. They give sucrose-infused water. And we've actually done studies now, we know, right? They've done studies where they do a proper anesthetic um, sort of pre-op block, you know, dorsal penile nerve block. Um, that hurts too. Of course. And <laughs> there are all sorts of other issues with that. But the, the study that I'm referring to is specifically to assess the, the role of the sugar water. So they do it with and without the, the sugar water and then, or I should say with and without the anesthetic, right? So they'll, they've done studies where they, they give anesthetic and the sugar water and then they test the pain response to first inoculation. And then they do it without the anesthetic with the sugar water and they test the pain response to at first inoculation. And of course, the pain response at first inoculation to the person who's been unanesthetized is, you know, is the same as you know, not giving them sugar water at all. Basically, there's no difference. So the sugar water does absolutely nothing, um, but they're still using it. Um, and the medical profession, for some reason, still carries this weird belief that if you give a baby sugar water, it will help with the pain of cutting off the most sensitive part of its penis. But I mean, it's, it's absurd, um, is what I'm getting at. But these beliefs um, sort of coalesce and I, I think it's easier for a belief like that to coalesce around a practice that to begin with was never really medically indicated than in other areas, right? So if you think about other kinds of surgical practices, these sorts of beliefs won't coalesce in quite the same dramatic fashion. Um, yeah. Um, I uh, teach childbirth classes, and so this um, is a topic that comes up every session that I teach, and um, I'm supposed to show an optional video of a medical circumcision, but um, I make it mandatory for them to watch. Um, however, what comes up for me is um, not uh, the religious aspect of circumcision, but um, the, you know, when they're trying to weigh the, the risks versus the the so-called benefits of, of having a medical circumcision. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, they're not entirely convinced by what I'm saying are the non-benefits to, to doing it. Um, but when I make the point about, um, you know, that it's not a decision that you should be making for your infant child, mm -hmm. um, that if they choose to do it as an adult, then, then they can do so. Um, what comes up a lot is you know, that you make medical decisions for them all the time. And it came up in the film a bit. Um, you know, we decide to immunize or not to immunize, immunize our babies. Um, we choose, you know, what food we feed them. Um, so I was just wondering if you could speak to that argument in, you know, that people make in favor of circumcision. Sure. I'm making the best medical decision, just sure. like you chose to immunize against. Absolutely. So the... It's a, it's a complex area, and, and this is the way I like to frame it. Parents make hundreds, maybe thousands of decisions for their children every day. That's just a structural requirement of being a parent. Some of those decisions are morally neutral, 
like how long their hair is, when you clip their nails, you know, you know, what time of the day you give them a bath. There are tons and tons of decisions that are morally neutral. Some of the decisions are morally good. So if your child uh, gets sick, you give them medicine, you know, feeding them the right kinds of foods. These are obvious moral goods. And then some of the decisions are clearly morally wrong. Right. So an example of an obvious morally wrong decision would be not providing treatment for a child who's sick, um, beating a child, uh, sexually abusing a child. Um, so, yes, parents make decisions for their kids all the time, but that doesn't mean that any given decision can't be subject to moral analysis. Now, to circumcision. Circumcision is a medically unnecessary procedure. So right off the bat, when you do a cost-benefit analysis, um, and again, I'm not, this is not particularly controversial. The vast majority of physicians that I have spoken to about this, and I've spoken to quite a few now, accept that it's not medically necessary. When we're dealing with a non-medically necessary procedure, the tolerance for any kind of serious complication goes way down. Because if we admit that it's not medically necessary, then any kind of serious complication that might come from it obviously throws the cost-benefit analysis into a very obvious sort of, you know, the costs weigh more than the benefits. Mm -hmm. Circumcision is, is one such case. There are many kids who die every year due to circumcision-related complications. It's something people don't talk about enough. It's something we don't have solid data on because hospitals attribute these deaths to other things. There are all sorts of other reasons that it's hard to collect this data. Um, but even if there are no further complications to circumcision, the sorts of things that people usually consider complications like partial glands amputation or complete, you know, uh, penectomy or uh, sepsis or meatitis or any of the I could give you dozens and dozens of things that occur regularly so even if none of that stuff happens and it's a quote-unquote perfect circumcision all of the sexual things that I talked about in my film will happen every time and it's true to, to say this is important the the sexual effects will affect different individuals differently but one of the things that happens, and we know that this happens from talking to the guys who do restoration, foreskin restoration, is that some percentage of the population are going to have such a, uh, a dramatic decline in neurological function that they're going to get to an age at which they don't feel much from their penis anymore. And you never know who that's going to be. So every time you circumcise an infant, you're rolling the dice that they might be one of those members of the population. But even, set, even setting that aside, those fringe cases aside, and again, you don't know if your child is going to be one of those people, um, you're getting rid of the ridge band. You're getting rid of the motility of the penis. There are dramatic effects on sexual experience. So even if we set aside all the complications and we set aside the part of the population that's going to be, it's going to have this precipitous neurological decline over time with age, you still have the central problem and the central thing in a quote-unquote perfect circumcision, you're dramatically affecting that person's future sexual experience. 
Um, so whatever kind of benefit you want to weigh up against that, as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's, it's almost irrelevant at that point. Um, and it's bad medicine, right? We don't go around suggesting that, uh, you know, we cut off one breast from every woman so that we can reduce the incidence of breast cancer in the country. You know, um, there's another thing that we haven't talked about is uh, women who have had only sex with circumcised men. Now, I spent 40 years not being married, being a single woman. I'm, you know, I'm not going to go into how many partners I had. Um, but I never had sex with an uncircumcised man. And when I think about it, even though I'm very, very pro uncircumcision, uh, it kind of takes me like, ooh, I don't know. And earlier in my life, I might have just said, I don't think so. This is too foreign to me. Right. But you know, my, you doing this, me listening to Dr. Dean Adele, my grandson not being circumcised, we start talking. I talk to my dad, he's 84, and he's really with it. I mean, he's like a 60-year-old. He tells me that he was circumcised at the age of eight, and he remembers it as a very, very traumatic. Very. I don't know what was going, going on. There was, a, there was a certain period in, yeah, there was a certain period in American history when um, it was coupled bizarrely with uh, tonsillectomies and, and things oh, like this. Yeah. Um, but just to address your point, yes, we have a, a, a deep sort of, in our culture, women have a sort of revulsion to the intact penis because it's so foreign to them and because in our culture the circumcised penis is the normal and the beautiful yeah. and what everyone knows. Um, what a lot of women don't know, and what I've been uh, talking a little bit to some people about on, on this tour, is that um, there are enormous benefits to female sexual experience from having sex with an intact and man. And I know that. And I read, I mean, in my lifetime, I've read a lot about sex. Yeah. I didn't know that. That was something very interesting to me, what that woman said. Yeah, on, and, and it film. goes beyond that. It... Um, Intact men bring lubrication to the party. Yeah. Um, so instead, you know, when you have sex with an intact woman and a circumcised man, one party, the, the intact woman, is is expected to provide all of the lubrication for the sexual act. Mm -hmm. And as um, Ken Drabic mentioned in the film, with a circumcised penis, you're pulling out lubricant every time because of the structural shape of the penis. It's got a scooping action. Whereas wow. with an intact penis, you don't have that. You create a closed system, and the penis moves in and out of its own sheath. So there are all sorts of sexual benefits for female uh, heterosexual women to having sex with intact men that are just completely you know, a people lot don't talk more about. More of that needs to be put out there because, like I said, I read. Uh, I'm. I mean, I was a nurse. This. I mean, watching, looking at people's naked bodies does not bother me one bit. But, um, and I read a lot, and for me, who reads a lot, and 
isn't turned off by reading that kind of thing, I've never heard of it. Yeah. It's not out there. Well, it might be out there, but I haven't read it. It's starting. It's starting. There's a, a woman by the name of O'Hara who I'm trying to remember what her book is called. I think it's called As Nature, as nature oh. Sex As Nature Intended It. Sex as, as Nature Intended It. Yeah. And she's done a lot of work on the female heterosexual perspective on circumcised versus oh. intact sex. Are yeah. you on Facebook? I can get there. I'm not. I don't have You're a computer. On Facebook and look up Patricia Robinette. That's right. Patricia uh, Robinette? Yeah. Okay. She's done some R -O -B -I -N -E -T -T, work on that. R-O-B-I-N-E-T-T, and they have a little message section, okay, that you can just click on message, and it won't, and you can ask her anything you want. Oh, shut up. Okay. And there's also um, someone that I did an interview with on this very podcast, Aubrey Taylor, who's uh, an intactivist who works in Atlanta, uh, and she's done a lot of online work talking about this, uh, talking about her sexual experience with intact men and why she prefers foreskin. Gee, and I'm getting kind of old. Maybe I need no, uh, Patricia, to find these uncircumcised men. I have to let you know, Patricia Robinette is a circumcised woman from Kansas, and she wrote her own book with her story. Now, why is she, why was she circumcised? Why is anyone circumcised? Oh, no, I don't know. I yes. Know Right, no, no, but no, the, no, no. so so th this is something, this is this another is part Kansas. of the story that people don't okay. often hear about, so I'll, I'll share with you. circumcised women in the United States? Th there, until, nine, until 1977, uh -huh. Blue Cross Blue Shield actually covered no. female circumcision no. in the United States. Yes. And it was, it, it's, it was never as widespread as male circumcision. But it was introduced for many of the same reasons that you heard about in the film. If the if people caught their daughters masturbating, oh no, they would take them to the doctor, and the doctor would uh, oh, do clitorectomy. No. This yeah. is nuts. Yeah, no, it's it's. I mean, I'm saying, oh, this is nuts because I've never heard of it, yeah. and uh, I mean, I've known some African women, like you know, that I, I've worked with, yep. and. I've asked them point blank about it, and I've read a little bit about it, but I never. Yep. Yeah, it, it was covered like, by imagine. Blue Cross Blue Shield until the 70s. I yeah. would never imagine that just regular old white Christian. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Well, I'm I glad you learned something new. <laughs> I've learned a lot today, actually, <laughs> and I thought I knew a lot about this subject. Do we have uh, any other questions or comments? Just a comment um, about what we were talking about, because you, you, your language was that there are benefits to women who have intact partners. Mm -hmm. And so what I want to say is that I'm a victim of circumcision too, male circumcision, because I have never experienced sex as nature intended. And so you hear so many times these mothers saying, like, oh, your, your son's wife will thank you someday. No, I am not thanking my mother-in-law. Right. I just have one more question before you start wrapping up, but um, I was wondering how you think, like the mother in the film, she was kind of joking about it, and then when it was happening, she was clearly distraught. So like, how does a mother who has this protective instinct go from watching her son go through that to like joking about you know, how cute her, her son's penises are a couple years later? All right, so this is what I think, and I think it relates directly to what we were just talking about. I, I, don't, I, I do think women are victims in this, not in the same sense, 
But in that sense, where we're talking about forcing a mother to swallow her maternal instincts that early on in in her caregiving and in her and in her mothering, that makes serious victims of women because it says that there's a social convention that you have to kowtow to, that you have to submit to, and that you have to throw out all of your maternal instincts in order to subject yourself to. And some people would call that patriarchal, right? That that's, that's a patriarchal sort of um, violence being done to women also. Uh, but I, I do think that that's what's going on here. Now, you know, obviously in this particular instance, um, and it shouldn't be surprising that, you know, joking about this or just, you know, humor is used a lot around this subject to make people feel better about, you know, something that they're very deeply uncomfortable with, especially a mother. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, this is, again, coming back to what this says about our society, we're very flip about it. You know, we joke about it. Um, but there's always an edge to those jokes. There's always an, uh, an underbelly. There's always, there's always something you can feel something's not quite right. Um, and that's partly because humor, in part, tells truth. That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com. 